0: I think our soul is based in our brain. Like, I think that it comes out in different ways, but it's our, fundamentally it's our personality.
1: Mariana Katz and this is Kaddish.
0: Your soul is your personality and why I say this is because as I'm like working with people with or have worked with people with dementia and interact with people with dementia and possibly might be developing that I can see parts of myself disappearing. My name is Megan you, and for almost two decades I worked full-time doing sex education.
1: I met Megan in 2010 when she came to my university to teach a couple of workshops. Megan got involved in issues of death and dying in hospice after working on issues of sexuality with adults who had cancer diagnoses. She now volunteers at a hospice. This is an episode about soul centering on our heroine, the atheist. We'll also be discussing advanced directives, hospice care, and going into some detail on dementia.
0: When you're walking around in the nursing homes or in the inpatient hospice and and you see the the people with dementia, people always talk about the fact that that person isn't there anymore. They're just a shell of a person and, and that's really gotten me thinking. I said this recently to someone and they got offended at the statement and I was like, "What? wait, I don't understand why you're getting mad at me. And it was, it was because they didn't believe, and this was fascinating to me, for them a soul isn't your personality, it has to do with a spirituality and a connection to God. I don't understand it, but it's something different that I've never thought of or heard before.
1: Okay, so there's a lot we don't know about the soul, like anything. There's a Jewish concept that our souls are a gift to us, that they are eventually collected back to the source. But what Megan is saying, that the soul is the personality stored in the brain, and that as we grow up, our soul actually grows and transforms, could possibly mean that we are co-creators of the soul given to each of us from a divine source. You know, if you want to make this soul concept into a God thing. But because Megan's soul is in her brain, she's observing it as it disappears.
0: Yeah. And that gets exhausting. (laughs) And it's heartbreaking and terrifying to hear other people see that happening. Right? Because our soul is what makes people want to be around us or not be around us. And so if you have nothing, then, I don't know, do you even exist?
1: Megan founded and ran the Center for Sexual Pleasure and Health for almost 20 years. While there, she answered a phone call from a woman panicking because of a sickness that doctors told her she was making up. After falling into medical journals and research, Megan became invested in the intersections of death and sickness and sexuality. She was among the first to start thinking about the sexual lives of cancer survivors, and from that became more interested in questions around death and dying.
0: I went to a conference last year called The Art of Dying. it was, it was astounding. It was just fantastic. And as someone who is, I would say, agnostic atheist, it was very heavy leaning on spirituality. And so I was like, but it was so good that I could distance myself from it and also start to take An understanding of how spirituality and religion is comforting to people like it was that good that I was like oh I can see this there are a couple people that really stood out to me um, in presentations and they led us through this activity where you you were laying there and you were dying and another person was to sit with you and practice comforting touch and approaching, and that was really powerful for me um, so that's kind of how i I got into it is the the importance of stillness and being present i think i went I went up to the lady that was running it after, and I was like, "You know." I'm not really a spiritual person, so I'm not really sure how I'm supposed to manage all of this. In fact, I don't really like feelings. I just like helping. And she just started laughing at me and I and I was like, but I'm really invested in like going forward with this work. I like it. And she's like, well, isn't that the lesson in life that you were put here for? And I was like, what? And she goes, you know, sounds like you're in for a, a, a big um, earthquake of learning how to sit and be with feelings and spirituality and practice. She's like, cause there's no way you're gonna get through this work without it. And she's like, that sounds to me like you were put, you're, you're being called to it to examine those things more. I was like, that's fascinating and I accept your challenge.
1: So Megan began training and volunteering as a hospice chaplain, an atheist chaplain, if we're being exact.
0: I'm learning not to say what my what my viewpoints are when directly asked. Like, I wouldn't bring it up. No, no way. I mean, how many studies have shown that atheists are the least trusted or liked individuals in America? You know, like, I don't want to go down that road. Um, But. I have been directly asked, which is interesting, because then I, I gave my real opinion, speaking using I statements and talking for myself, and it didn't go so well. Uh, and I could feel and see the person getting angry, as though I was challenging their beliefs, even though I wasn't. And it was specifically on a conversation of, after the person had died, this person was like, it was his dad. And he's like, I just know, I just know that I'm going to see him again. And in my head, I'm like, but why do you? You know what I mean? Like, but he he had, I saw him flare up and he just started repeating it over and over again. Even when we moved off of that topic and went somewhere else, he came back to it. And I was like, then that sounds like it's going to be true for you. Like, if you believe that strongly, I think that's going to happen. Which is interesting, because then I felt like I was directly lying to him, and that didn't feel good. I said, I really don't know, but I think we kind of just disintegrate into the earth. But Seeming as I haven't done it before. I don't really have any explanations. He's like, oh, but the white light. And I was like, yeah, but the white light is endorphins and it's like pain relieving things that your body is flooding you through. Have you read the book, How We Die? Like that didn't, it didn't go well. <laughs> what was interesting was when I was watching him, I could see his face turn into grief. I could see his body go into the grief where before he had been a, functioning individual who was just walking through the nursing home and saying hello to people. But when this conversation happened, I could see the grieving pop back into his face and make it visible to others. So it seemed like a self soothing, like trying to, trying to calm himself down, which I, I really didn't want to take that away. Like, I don't want to take that away from people. So I've learned not, I'm not answering those questions anymore.
1: (laughs) If hospice is a shift in care model, no longer looking for curative treatments, but for comfort and chaplains work in the muck of soul, or at least we think they do. What's our dear non-believer doing in hospice?
0: One of the things I have, I've really struggled with is, and I always have as a child is seeing others in pain, like deeply disturbs me to an unhealthy level. And so if I can provide some comfort, relieve some loneliness by being present with a person and being fully there, I will happily do that. I don't, think that yeah, I, th- I think it's about being present for the person who is dying and also per- present for the family if they're present, like they're in a whole different world of pain. And so if you can sit and be present with that and not try to take it away and gloss over it, like, I think there's value in that. I, I, I think that we hide from pain too much. So I think it's important to be confronted with it. And to learn how to sit with it as opposed to flee or from it.
2: Well, hospice is positioned within a reality of truth-telling. I am Rabbi Amy Goodman, and I am the rabbinic director of Hebrew Senior Life Hospice Care. There's a lot, oftentimes, more truth um, shared within a hospice context than there are in some other medical settings. Because in order to enroll, to be eligible for hospice, this is where hospice may be very different from other models of care or other types of care, even in the context of life-limiting illness or terminal illness. Hospice is about, shifting the focus of the medical care, because it remains a medical, it is medical care, but it's shifting the focus from curative treatment, from rehabilitative treatment, to comfort for as many moments as that person has. The timeline is short, relatively short to someone's, um, oftentimes to someone's length of their life. Um, It is a specific window of eligibility, which people are able to be on the outside of the outliers in um, as long as the progression of that illness remains and, and you can see clinical decline. But when you open up to that reality, that we do meet People, we meet families with an incredible kind of openness and interest in sharing truths, truths about themselves and their life, talking about what they want to be remembered, how they want to be remembered, what fears they have, what regrets they have. Um, and this is really, it's, it offers, so it's on the spiritual side of it, that we meet people really from a place of extreme vulnerability when they are accepting oftentimes, acknowledging if not accepting, aware of, open to, the reality is very limited. And what you want to talk about and what you want to prioritize in that limited time sometimes really comes to the priorities what is most important to this person, that hospice is able to sit within the questions of that really come from a place of sorrow and disappointment and loss and sadness um, that we don't often sit in. And our response to our own mortality can be one of Joy and relief and elation and 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 wellness and knowing that you'll be reunited with people um it you know based on what your your own personal and theological beliefs may be, but it, it is rarely um unambivalent because our lives are also living is pretty great, even for people who have been suffering but
1: what actually happens for the dying during hospice?
3: It's what I would say from the the death work that I've done is that to me, it's clear that the person who is dying is doing a lot of work um, emotionally and spiritually and oftentimes physiologically. My name is Mo. I am a hospice nurse and I live in Minneapolis. Uh, And that happens in... um, in stages in a non-linear fashion and that that's part of the the work of death is what's happening emotionally and spiritually and that looks really different for different people and in terms of if that means that yeah that means that they're sitting up and eating ice cream or if that means that they're non-responsive to voice and touch or if that means that they have um, neurological activity that sort of makes them have tremors or, you know, what, whatever the, the various, their various expressions that you know range from very common to not very common. Um, and then I think express themselves in the body. Uh, and that, that obviously, the, oftentimes the most access that people around have of the physical manifestations of that. And so it, to me, the, the emotional and spiritual work that the dying person is doing is, is a bit of a mystery because, uh, it's almost as if you're looking at the physical body for markers of what's happening emotionally and spiritually. And I believe that those things are interconnected, but not synonymous. But all that to say, say you have, um, uh, Heart failure patient who has, for a long time, managed the feelings of shortness of breath that they experienced with oxygen use and rest, and then as they get closer to passing away, those interventions are no longer working. The pharmacologic the pharmacological intervention that's often used would be low dose of morphine, um, and. Oftentimes, people will associate the introduction of morphine as the start of the person's dying process. Though, from a nurse's perspective, you're introducing palliation for the symptom that might signal a change in the person's, where they're at. Uh, But it's not the morphine that is expediting the death process um but people often will have an emotional or spiritual understanding that it you know the uh, my you know that my grandma was doing fine and then they started giving her morphine and then she started dying um and so i think understanding it, that that's that a snippet of that line in some way comes out in a lot of uh, family narratives about what it means to die and so i think understanding the impact of that for people is helpful. Something that is can can be confusing for everyone involved, including myself, is that sometimes the dying person is very able to say, this is what I want. Like I really need something more than what's happening, or I'm really afraid of doing this because to me this signals that I'm dying. Um and sometimes people aren't in a place where they can say that for themselves. And then you're left as the healthcare provider in that situation to work that out with the family. So there's a lot of approximation of free will and preference. And um, that I think is just confusing is a word that comes to mind, but I don't actually mean that negatively, just like it's unclear. It's sometimes it's a little unclear how you should proceed in that for all parties involved that, you know, I'm very much about like empowering people to state their preferences and make sure that those are respected. It would also be naive for me to say that I don't have a sense of what might make somebody physiologically comfortable at the end of life and sort of say like, well, whatever you think would make somebody physiologically comfortable at the end of life is the, is right. Um, not—I mean—I don't think it's about being right or wrong, but I think that that was very hard. That was challenging for me becoming a hospice nurse. How, uh, because I felt uncomfortable with being positioned as a as an expert because of too much anti-authoritarian jargon in my mind. Um, but to actually, that th- that's unhelpful to pretend that you don't that that uh, that you're a neutral party is unhelpful to the overall process.
1: Chaplaincy and hospice has taught me that we only have the tools that we have. Be it medicines to deal with pain, family dynamics that have been ingrained for our whole lives, emotional tools, we can only work with the building blocks of life that we have. Hospice does not cure family rifts, necessarily, and it doesn't try to bring back a curative diagnosis. We come into the room as patients as family as nurses as chaplains just as we are and we have to watch it unfold together
0: i don't like working with people who have dementia i do not like it and i thought i was going to be fine with it when we were going when i was going for the training and my partner the the first day i think he dropped me off and he decided to sit with me and they were explaining that at one point, hospice was really focused on HIV um, patients, and then um, he's kind of talking over like the decades and he's like, and then there is a time where and he's like, people still think of this, like hospice is cancer. Uh, you'll be working with a lot of cancer patients. He's like, really this we don't have that. What well, we have mostly is is people who have dementias. And I was like, oh <laughs> and he's like, do you have any issue with that? And I'm like, no, no, I'm fine. Like a little part of me was really sad. Um uh, uh and then my partner's like, you know, maybe that's not the best thing for you right now. Like he he said it to me in front of the guy and I could see the guy not wanting to ask questions. Um, I was like, no, nah, no, it'll be fine. But I did it. And then promptly wrote to the director. I don't want to do it will Um, bad. that feels bad. Like, I feel like I should be able to do it. Like, just because it's their does I mean, it might turn into mine. Um,
1: Megan is really open, talking about what she knows about what's going on in her brain. But we only have these two categories. Needs a chaplain, or is a chaplain. We have the sick, or the well. Megan bridges both these categories, as her sick story continues to develop, and she continues to be a hospice volunteer. Mm -hmm.
0: ago i started noticing that i was having problems with numbers and keeping dates straight um start here and there showing up to presentations on the wrong day or stuff like that or missing my flights and as with all things you push them off until they're smack in your face um and so those those things started progressing. I started noticing I was having trouble reading emails. I started passing that off to staff, my staff, and and then um and then it really it really all smacked in the face where I couldn't read a plane ticket. I didn't know where I was, like what I was supposed to do. And so that started a process of going to doctors trying to go to doctors um and ultimately all the doctors being like there is something wrong with your brain but it will take us some time to figure it out which is for someone who like doing likes doing investigation and figuring things out is Maddening and infuriating um, to be told like it's not this, but and it's not this so we're just going to have to kind of wait and see. So that's kind of where I am. You know at first they were saying frontal, they were concerned it was frontal temporal lobe dementia degeneration because they see a lot of damage on the in in psychological and verbal tests, uh, frontal and left temporal lobe damage, but nothing is showing up on the scans themselves. Um, so now we've started using, and so and I go to dementia groups. Um, But at home, we've started using brain damage. Everything feels very murky. They said three to five years, which is a long time to sit. I'm trying to figure out how can I um, have a spot in this world, in the state that I'm in, versus just existing. And so going to hospice was a way for me to try to give back and not just take up space.
1: Thanks so much for listening to episode one of Kaddish. We'll take a break here and I'll mention that you can check out our brand new website, kaddishpodcast.com for updated info on all of the guests on the show, as well as blogs and transcription of every episode. And now a word from our sponsors.
4: Hey, Tadish, the podcast, I'm calling to tell you and your Babely listeners about A Year of Radical Dreaming, a Jewish calendar project. What I have for you is a 5777 calendar organized by Jewish Month, eight and a half by 11, ready for hanging on your very special wall. Each month features art, culture, knowledge, and history from a whole gaggle of brilliant, beautiful Jewish leftists because you've always wanted to know when the flood started and when the Bund was founded in the very same place. So order one for you, two for your besties, one for your crush, three for your collective. You can find out more information on the Facebook. Uh, Just search for Radical Jewish Calendar. You can go to bit.ly slash radically Jewish in 5777 to order a calendar. And if you do so by Rosh Hashanah this Sunday, September 4th, then you'll
1: get a calendar delivered to you by Rosh Hashanah. You too can advertise your projects, events, books, calendars, CDs, mattresses, anything you think that our listenership might be interested in. Email me at a-r-i-a-n-a at kaddishpodcast.com.
5: What's an advanced directive? It's a thing queers need. My name is Obadia. I think having advanced directives as a queer trans man is really important and also can't be talked about without talking about the intersectionality of it, of Jewish face, of friend's face, of all the problematic nature of it being a legal document, and so on and so forth. asking me like what's an advanced directive and they turn into a lot of fruitful conversations about like even if you're in a if you're married like what state do you live in and so if something were to happen to you depending on what state you're like visiting or whatever even if you're technically married to someone of the same sex whatever that means then you might not they may not might might not be able to make decisions and when it comes down to it when you're in most in need someone can come out of nowhere and make those decisions if it's not written on a piece of paper.
1: Because for so many, there's a fear that a person in an operating room or at a front desk might decide who to listen to and who to not listen to. And perhaps a piece of paper might help that.
5: Yeah, I have that piece of paper that is like signed for the state of Pennsylvania. And you know, if this kind of brain thing happens, then this kind of resuscitation thing happens, you know, and then also like, there's a page on the back, which is added on and like not required and that's about like when i die or when i can't make decisions like this is how i want you to treat my gender this is how i want you to bury me this is how i want you to have the freedom to make decisions as you need you know like all these kind of things that are in the mix of life when it doesn't really work as it's supposed to work and so for me it's kind of like an advanced directive and I learned about it through Jewish tradition and ethical will, and that those go together to like hold the human part um, in addition to like something that the state needs to acknowledge, because otherwise it's just sucky.
1: All of that can fit inside of an actual advanced directive, which can be legally binding, but it's variable by state and the type of document. Luckily, we have Rabbi Amy to help us figure out all of these terms.
2: So so the one of the legal the legal um documents is is a will or a trust. Um, there is a power of attorney document, the healthcare proxy, or, or also called a durable power of attorney, living will. And the limitation is that there are states in which a living will is not um, a binding legal, legal document. If, if the family is all in agreement, um, then that living will can be very, very instructive in helping guide families' decisions, the medical advance directive. That healthcare proxy designates the healthcare surrogate. The 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 challenge with a healthcare proxy, um, you know, there are many challenges with with any and all of these these advanced care documents. Um, is that the person can only only the individual can designate the healthcare surrogate when that person has capacity to do so. The living will is another quote-unquote legal document, and I only say that because it's not a legally binding document in, in all states, but if it is not legally binding and then you have to go to court between different parts of the family or different decision makers, um, it it isn't, it doesn't have legal standing in, in that way, um, which you know, which is problematic.
1: You can get your house in order. You can draft up every document you need according to the place you live, put one in a lockbox, BCC email everyone you know, interview executors and healthcare proxies, but how does it actually
0: play out? Back to Megan. I have just seen family (laughs) – when families and loved ones are dealing with grief and pain and shock and loss, all reasoning goes out the window, all of it. And there's such a flood of emotions people don't know how to handle that the advanced directive is at least one way that you can give your family some peace, some comfort and knowing that they don't have to handle yet another thing. They don't have to guess. It's just, it's there. And if they ignore it, well then they're just being douchebags. But in and legally they're not allowed to but the the pain that happens when some, someone leaves your life and you weren't ready to let them go is beyond devastating and to think that we should put really large um problems in their hands is also mean and I think on our part. There's only so much that the soul can handle without breaking
5: apart a little bit. And and to help make like the specific decisions and then the feelings of this person isn't here and how can I be honoring them and anything I do doesn't necessarily help that person or like fix the situation and so nothing can be right and so to have something that speaks to like almost hold that person back as they're holding you to be like it's okay i chose you i want you to do the best you can this is clearly shitty situation and you probably can't fix it and it's okay like i really signed off you're the best person for this like you don't have to question yourself so much
2: it's very very difficult to move from um paperwork to uh, the reality and then from the reality to extrapolate to other situations um, if, if it really isn't an integrated conversation about values and about wishes.
1: So then why are we even talking about or writing advanced directives? Shouldn't we all just be having really meaningful conversations with the people who we want to make our decisions when we're not able to for ourselves?
5: I'm such a proponent, and I still also see how problematic it is. And that's larger like, wait, wait where do you play in the system so it feels a little easier, and where do you back and be like, I refuse to participate, and it's all wrong in all of these ways? Because other people get to define who my family is and what my body's supposed to look like. And also at the same time, you have to do this so that you then have power to push against the system. Like, you have to be in it. Like, you have to work it to challenge it.
1: The way that Megan and Rory are thinking and talking about advanced directives make it clear that for them, it's about taking care of the people that live past you. And that when filling out forms that dictate your life in a really easy-to-read story are crushing and violent and often impossible in our living, there's this really interesting question about whether we should do them or not in the off chance that they might even work, in the off chance that they might give us the dying that we lived our whole lives fighting for.
5: So so that's where it can be limited and frustrating of it's like you in a single moment, and it's not you at the moment that you've died, and it's not you that holds more than one of those moments. And so it feels like it has walls and it's frustrating and it's like not going to bring you back. Um, and at the same time, yeah, it's that like pause and intention, that like kavanah of... I am thinking about you, I'm here, and therefore, because I can kind of exist at this moment with thinking about other moments, when you're in another moment and thinking about me even if I don't exist, I have, and I do, because I, like, am still held in your memory and in whatever form this ethical will has been made on. And that's me, that's been, in my mind, an advanced directive and an ethical will really go together, because an advance directive is like, dear doctor, please don't put this tube in this place at this time, which is really important. I'm not making light of that by any means, because if the wrong tube is put in this wrong place at this wrong time, um, so that is like baseline, and then how do you hug the person that's there taking care of you? then? But I guess you also use an advanced directive without actually having to add to.
1: Right. So it's important to note that when you're incapable of making decisions, the decision making power goes to the person that you indicated in your advanced directive. So that means you can get sick and get better. But when you're sick, the advanced directive goes into effect. So, for example, if you're in surgery and you're under anesthesia, the situation changes The person who is responsible for making those decisions for you would then have the power to do so.
5: By default, who does, like we don't pause all the time and think by default, who is going to answer these questions. I mean, the fact that I have seen my father in the last 15 years of my life, one time, whoa, if I didn't have an advanced directive as any kind of like, he knows me as, a seven-year-old girl. Like, that was the last time we ever spent any time together. Can you imagine? Can you? Like, he wouldn't even be able to find me. He doesn't know my name. He doesn't know my gender. I mean, what? Like, how is he going to make any decision about anything ever? When not feeling either in your body, the way that you connect and feel to your body, by gender, by whatever it might be, you're forced to ask these questions of yourself and of like what you can do um, when maybe you do feel in your body and your identity aligned for yourself and society doesn't see you the way that you feel and connect. You're forced to ask these questions and like, push these boundaries. Um, I think an advanced directive is like another tool to be like, here is who I am, here are the choices that I'm making these people are the people that see me, so that for all those things that happen that can't be, like, foreseen, these are the people that, who not by law, because of biological connection or whatever, um, inherently just get to make decisions, like, these are the people that are the ones that are going to make decisions. And so, it's frustrating to be like, the state needs something written down on a piece of paper, but it also can feel really empowering to make another choice about this is my body and these are how I'm making choices about my body. Everybody needs to, and especially people who make beautiful families that are not within the definition, like pause and think like, who really would this fall back on if a court was the one that was ultimately making decisions?
1: So this is how it gets hard. Like it wasn't hard already. Because you can say what you want, you can write an advance directive and ethical will and find the people who are dearest to you, who know you best, and trust that they'll take care of it. But what happens when you're really alone?
5: one point in my life, I was asked by Katherine Kurz in um, death and mourning class that I took with her, one of the assignments was to each person individually had to write an ethical will. And that was the most painful all-nighter I've ever spent not being able to write an ethical will. I ended up in the morning writing her an email being like, I can't send you one because it feels like I'm writing a suicide note. It feels like this is like, like I've written those in my late teens. And to write an ethical will in a space of like, what do you want to leave and tell people? I just like couldn't get around that. And that was also at a stage when I didn't feel I had family of of any capacity. Maybe that's why I couldn't write an ethical will and have an advanced directive when I was 18. Like I knew it wasn't my parents, but I didn't have people that we're going to see me that way to be able to vouch for me and do for me and so yeah i think that there needs to be space made for write an advanced directive and get someone who can take care of you to really sign it when like what if you don't have that person right now and I, there are so many people out there who every year get in situations where they can't make their own decisions and who have or have died and are not respected and honored as the human beings that, that they were, um, and I guess we do come back to Kaddish and we come back to how we hold the way we live and the ritual and the space we hold for people that we may never meet, um, to encompass them and embrace them with our own ethical wills, with thinking about what could be out there.
1: In a setting like where Rabbi Amy works, where she's working with elders, her answers are a little bit different. But what we can really take away from what she has to tell us is that in hospice work, you trust people with the truth that they have, that they made it this far, and they must have figured a couple of things out.
2: There is something protective for that person or something supportive or nurturing, let's say, about how that person's navigated the world as an alone person, because you don't get to 95 if it isn't somehow, whether or not it's the ideal, whether or not it's it's what the person set out to do consciously, that we are not, as, as hospice professionals, meeting people who are by and large, displaying new patterns, that these are patterns of behavior and relationship and systems that have existed long, long, long before we ever came into the picture. And and the other piece of it is that for people who are really, um, really alone, um, that there are um, there are elder attorneys who, who will function in this capacity. There are advocates, elder advocates, there are people in the community who, who are able and and do this for, for certain people.
5: and ethical will says, hey, I'm here, and you're there, or I was here, and you won't be there, and it just like pauses something in time that Stretches across a continuum, a bridge between to, to hold hands, to give a hug, to embrace when you can't do that in that moment, when like someone most needs it. At this point in time, I've thought about you at that point in time, in some sort of way, and therefore by pausing now and you are pausing where you are, we're like, we're connected.
1: Okay, so we spent all this time talking about how we want our bodies taken care of. But what does that actually have to do with the soul?
5: I can't separate souls and body, you know, and so when I think about my body, I think about where my soul kind of hangs out and with at this point in time, maybe not tonight when I go to sleep and like, maybe not tomorrow, if I'm still not here, like, you know, I think about my body because it's holding and expressing and helping this soul be there and it matters in all of that magical unknown space like could your soul still be somehow around connected to your body i don't think about it really in such tangible terms um but like respecting the body that could I, A, either still be connected to the soul after you've died, or B, actually really like it's this thing that's done this magical job of like being and connecting to soul and shepherding and so on and so forth Um, and for in regards to an advanced directive, what more important time if you're like in this in between limbo stage potentially not fully present in body and in like psychos like psychologically on point um but you're not dead like you're still there and who's going to take care of that in between part like when your body can't do the talking and caring for you but like you're still you like no one's going to deny that if you're still not been pronounced dead right and so isn't that the space of the soul and therefore this state sanctioned advanced directive (laughs) is something that like you need to have made so that that can be protected.
1: So as for Megan, her advance directive is already figured out. After Megan dies, she'll be donating her body to the body farm at the University of Tennessee.
0: Doing this type of research can help uh, people learn how their loved ones died when sitting with that unknown is so uncomfortable. Um, And I knew I couldn't have the type of burial that I wanted because it's not legal. So I was like, this is the next best thing. Megan's soul is in her brain.
1: Megan's brain is in her body. And Megan is donating her body to research to improving the understanding of the lives and deaths of others. Megan is donating her soul to research. When the living remember the dead, it is for a blessing. But what about when the dead remember the living? When we leave behind advanced directives, living wills, ethical wills, our files organized neatly, for easy access and funeral planning. When we leave behind digital archives of who we were when we were alive, our dead get a shot at blessing the living. been episode one of kaddish the first full-length episode if you liked what you heard you can subscribe on itunes and please leave a review you can also stream it through soundcloud check out our brand new website kaddishpodcast.com for info on the amazing people who are on this show as well as a transcript of every episode and blogging find yourself, like I find myself on most days, saying, hey, where's the text? I will be posting a source sheet from Safaria on social media and on our website to study along with. Check us out on Facebook, Kaddish Podcast, on Twitter, at Kaddish Podcast, and drop me an email, ariana, A-R-I-A-N-A, at Podcast.com. I'd really love to hear from you. Our next episode in October will be about the topic of reproductive loss. If you have a story that you want to tell or a book to recommend or a text that you want to bring, get in touch. To purchase your very own Radical Jewish calendar for 5777 and to support our sponsor, go to bit.ly/radicallyjewishin5777. Shoot me an email if you're interested in advertising. I'd love to talk Huge thanks to Megan, Mo, Rabbi Amy, and Ovadia who shared their brilliance with this episode. Thanks to Sid Weissman, JJ Tan for transcription, JB Breaker for Illustration, Chelsea Noriega for Web Design, Tiny Victor for Music, and the incredible generosity of the Jewish Federation of Greater Hartford that makes this podcast possible. And lastly to the warm and caring nursing staff at Einstein Hospital in Philadelphia. I'm Ariana Katz. Sometimes your Shiva minion is digital.